Thank you, Wine Lurzer Community Group. Appreciate that. And thank you, worship team. In our adult Sunday school, we were reminded, I believe it's in Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Spirit, to be continually filled with the Spirit. And I sense God's Spirit in this place this morning. Well, today we begin a new book of the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible, and there are how many in the Old Testament? 39, right. And how many in the New Testament? Which equals? All right. Jesus is a rock. And he's the he's the rock that we build our lives on. And the way that we build our lives on the rock is by understanding, reading and applying ourselves to God's holy written word. This is the primary way that God intends for us to know him. It's a, it's a special and deliberate word. And so we want to get uh, God's word into us. And we want to put ourselves into God's word. You know, God wants to be known. That boggles my mind sometimes when I think about how incredible God is. The fact that he actually wants to be known by me. He wants to be known by you. Last week in the Muslim Awareness Seminar, we learned that the belief about Allah is that he is very, very holy other. He's he's otherworldly. He's lofty. He's in essence, beyond our reach. And the idea that we could actually know him is absurd. He's too lofty for that. Well, Yahweh is absolutely holy and otherworldly. He's way out of our league. And yet he wants to be known. And though he's out of our league, he comes into our league and he comes into our world through the incarnation, his son, Jesus Christ. And he gives us a special message and he gives us a special way for us to to get to know him. And when we read it, God's word reads us as well. It's a living, dynamic, active relationship. So not only is God transcendent, but he's imminent and he's here with us this morning. And he knows that we have our Bibles before us and he knows that you're here listening to his word. Hopefully our hearts are hungry to hear from our transcendent, imminent God this morning, well, one of the things that we say in our statement of faith in our new our new members class or covenant class is that one of our purposes is to know him and then also to make him known. And so this is how we do it. We do it by pouring ourselves into book after book of his special revelation. This is what we do at New Covenant Fellowship. If God says it, we cover it. We talk about it. We don't skip over the hard things. We dig deep and cover it all. Now, I don't preach eight-hour sermons like Ezra does. Uh, the reason that Ezra can preach eight-hour sermons is because they started on time. And so he could do that. And we don't start on time, so I'm confined to about 40 or 45 minutes, but I try to pack it all in the best I can. Well, I am on year 13, completed 12. I'm on year 13 of serving as your pastor. And over those years, we have studied quite a few Bible books. Uh, I had to go back and I confess and look it up. But what are some of the Bible books that if you've been here that long, do you remember that we have studied? We took on the entire book. (laughs) Nehemiah, Hebrews, Genesis, Ephesians. Acts, Samson's in the book of Judges, and then we just completed 
well, it's, you, you can't really, it's hard to study it as a book, but we just completed the wisdom of Proverbs. Okay, I think you got them all. Did somebody say Colossians? We did Colossians as well. So we have covered nine books of the Bible. We've looked at the Old Testament. We've looked at the New Testament. But we also looked at some, I uh, did some thematic studies. Can you remember some of our thematic studies? The Lord's Prayer. Gifts of the Spirit. The parables. We looked at the tabernacle, the significance of the tabernacle. Ten Commandments. Very good. So we did, um, we did about five thematic studies. Well, today we begin um, Lord's Prayer. Did somebody already say that? that's right? Lord's Prayer. Today we, be, we add another book of the Bible to our list, and it will be the Gospel of Matthew. And I truly believe this is going to be quite an adventure for us. Matthew is just packed with truth after truth. I mean, life-changing, life-shattering. I, I, I've been um, studying just chapter 1. I haven't made it out of chapter 1 yet in my preparation. Even the genealogies are just so packed with the wisdom of God. Um, it's like a, a well that just keeps on giving thousands and thousands of gallons a minute. Well, Matthew is going to give us thousands and thousands of truths to build our lives on the rock. There's just so much here to think about, so much here to apply as we think about the life of Christ. It's ministered to me many, many times already. I'm using it also for my devotional material. It's just a tremendous, tremendous book. And eventually we will make it out of all uh, through all 28 chapters of this book and uh, see what the Holy Spirit has to say to us as individuals and as a body. Well, this morning, my goal was simple. I just want us to look at two things kind of as an introductory sermon. We're going to look at the book and then we're going to look at the author or the man that wrote the book. But before we do that, I just want to answer the question. Well, Pastor Paul, why Matthew? Why the why the gospel of Matthew? Why are we going to take the time to pour ourselves into that? Well, quite frankly, as I thought about uh, what book began to pray about, what book should we study next, Lord? And I do that, of course, several months in advance. I, Matthew wasn't even on my radar. Um, frankly, I had already began to prepare to go through the book of Revelation. And as I began to prepare my study in that and sermons for that, Matthew kept coming up and coming up. And I found myself constantly in Matthew. And, and it was Matthew that began to... Uh, just challenged me personally. And then I began to see as you look at different aspects of Matthew that I think this is the book that God would have us to study and to help us through the season that we are in right now as a church. And churches are in different seasons, even though we're all the body of Christ. Just as individuals, we go through different seasons of life. We have different joys, highs, lows, struggles. Well, a church has a life of its own because Christ is its head and Christ is alive. And so he is moving us along. He's sanctifying us as a body, building us up. And I think Matthew will play an important role with where we are as a church right now. Because Matthew does a great job at giving uh, us as individuals, but also as a body, this very unique and distinct place and purpose. It, it really helps us see how we fit into God and his plan. You know, sometimes as Christians, uh, because we, we often get into a rut. And a lot of times it's a good rut. We get into a good rut of doing the right things. And it's a good place to be. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But sometimes as we do the same things repetitively, it's not so hard for us to lose our place, to lose our purpose, and to start asking the question, why am I doing this again? Why am I here? And what are we supposed to be doing as individuals and as a church? If my math is right, we've been a church now for about 32 years. And for the most part, we do about the same thing every time we gather. We gather for the same reason. We exalt Christ. And we do it often in the same ways. We, we preach the word. We have uh, prayer time. We have praises. We, we sing our, uh, our songs to the Lord. Uh, and many times we come, we sit even in the same seats. We say the same people, the same faces. You see the same pastor and hear the same type or style of preaching. And so a lot of times because we do the same good thing repetitively, uh, it, it can begin to lose its luster. And if we're not careful, like the church of Ephesus, we could even lose our first love. All in doing the right thing. All in showing up and with a heart to serve the Lord. We, we have to keep it fresh and we have to have constant reminders of why am I doing this again? Why are we praying? Why does church run late every Sunday? Why? Whatever. So in this sense, I think Matthew's going to really help us to stay the course because it, he does a wonderful job of taking our lives and putting them into the context of the gospel and more specifically the context of the kingdom of God. We just came out of the book of Proverbs and we learned that wisdom is living competently in regards to reality. In other words, living truth. What's really there and God helps us to see what's really there and we need God's eyes and then living according to what is really there. Matthew reminds us of what is really there. Matthew reminds us of the reality that we live in, the context that we have been placed in, and I would say the context that we have been born again into. What is that reality? Well, we'll see that reality this morning as we look at these two things, the book and then the man that wrote the book. Well, first of all, the Gospel of Matthew. What is the reality that Matthew brings to our attention? The resounding message of this particular gospel is that Jesus is the sovereign king. Christ is king. The kingship of the Messiah is the resounding message of Matthew. That's what he brings to us time and time again. And so if there is a king and Jesus is the king, then we need to understand that means that he has a kingdom. And if Jesus has a kingdom, then he has a people in his kingdom. And if he has a people in his kingdom, then he has certain ways or laws that his people are to abide by that make the kingdom what it is. 
And if there's a kingdom, then we should know what it means and what it looks like to be in that kingdom. And then we'll also learn and discover what it looks like for people to not be in that kingdom and to live lives that are not in that kingdom. And so Matthew just beautifully lays this out. And Christ does with his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, where we are just faced with these truths that are so countercultural. As I began to read these and, and, and prepare for this, it, it just rocked my world all over again. Because the simple teachings of Christ where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what he does is he sets us straight. And he says, here's how man interpreted it, and he was wrong. Here's what the true intention of this timeless truth means. This is how my people should always live. And it is so countercultural. And I just felt like I was... Still in the beginning stages of my Christian walk when I read the Sermon on the Mount. Like, wow, I, got, I have so far to go. So it is the reality of the kingdom. That's the, res- the resounding message in Matthew. And each gospel has its own message. It, it's, it's one message, but four accounts. It's not four accounts, or it's not four gospels, if you will. It's just one gospel, but there's four accounts. So for the gospel of um, Mark, Jesus, the, the message there is that Jesus is the suffering servant. That's what Mark reminds us of. And he reiterates. And for the son of man, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to many. And then for Luke, his gospel, the message is Jesus is the son of man. And he he ties Jesus's genealogy all the way back to the man, Adam, the first man. And Jesus is the new man. And, of course, John says Jesus is God. That's his message. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. His message is Jesus is God. Well, Matthew's message is that Jesus is the King. He's a predicted Messiah. He's the anointed one. And he ties his genealogy to David, who received the promise that One of your descendants will reign on a throne forever. He will never come down off of that throne and no one will ever overpower him or wrestle him off it. And that person is Jesus Christ, the sovereign king. So this is his gospel letter. It's not a congregational letter like the book of Ephesians, for example, where the Apostle Paul is just writing to a specific group of people and addressing certain things. And it's not an autobiography and it's really not a very uh, it's not a it's not chronologically written. Not everything is exactly in the chronological place that it belongs. And it's not comprehensive. It's not a comprehensive account. You have to go to the other Gospels to learn more. But it's a message of the good news of the sovereign king. An overview for this book, John MacArthur divides it into three uh, categories. First, he says, we find the king revealed. Immediately as we will open this book, you're going to just see this emphasis on Jesus as the king. Ties his genealogy back to David. Jesus comes into this world uh, humbly But wearing royal colors, he comes in royally. Uh, His birth is immediately dreaded by a rival king, King Herod, who has received news. The king is born. 
So that's how real it is. That's how real Jesus is. Uh, The wise men later come and they offer this king their royal gifts. His forerunner, John the Baptist, says, uh, the kingdom is at hand. Behold, the kingdom is at hand. If the kingdom is at hand, that means the king is here. And even in the temptations of Christ that we will look at in Matthew, it shows us his kingly rule because what did Satan do in one of the three great temptations? But he takes him up high and he shows him the kingdoms. He, because Christ has the right to rule over these kingdoms and Satan even acknowledges that. But he just says, I'd prefer you to kind of rule under me instead of over me. His miracles are his kingly credentials. And he was hailed as uh, the king as he made his triumphal entry. They hailed him as the king there on what we would celebrate as Palm Sunday. And even while facing the cross, he showed his uh, kingship in that he predicted to reign in the future. And of course, he says, I, by the way, have dominion over angels. They're my servants. They do what I tell them to do. And then his last words in the Gospel of Matthew, some of his last words before he descended, were words of a king. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, I tell you, I can tell you what to do because I have all authority. And my plan for my kingdom is that therefore you would go into all the world and make disciples. That's the king telling his people what to do. The second part of this book, or another message within the idea of the king revealed, is the king rejected. Because like no other book, not only do we see that Christ is the king, but we also see that the people to whom he came, or the people for whom he came, to rule over as king, they rejected him. They refused to submit to anything that he said. They refused to acknowledge him as their Ruler, And so Matthew is a gospel of rejection as well. Jesus constantly lives in this shadow of rejection. I mean, you think about before he was even born, his mother was nearly rejected by Joseph. And, and it kind of starts like that. And then he's born. And then what does he have to do? Because Herod is after him. And, and he has to flee. He and his family have to flee for safety of their life and in essence jesus lives in obscurity and in a little town in nowhere for about 30 years it's no nobody knows what he's up to really few people know what he's what he's doing uh then finally when he's heralded by his forerunner his forerunner is arrested and then beheaded And then the great idea of rejection or betrayal was when he was on the cross and and said those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in this book of kingship, you also see we will see together how King Jesus was and is rejected. His reign and rule is continue, continually rejected even today in part or partial. When he was on the cross, he didn't have a powerful gathering of people praising his heroic act. 
People were mocking him. They reviled him. They despised him. They were glad to see his life end. So we see the king revealed and we see the king rejected. But we also see the king return. Like no other book, Matthew hones in on the idea that this man that died on the cross and rose again and seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne, he is coming again. And when he comes again, it will be in all of his splendor and all of his glory. Nothing that he held back while he walked this earth will be held back when he comes again as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he will consummate his kingdom. No more games, no more play, and no more permission or being permissible for his enemies to, to reign, for sin to have its way. He's going to come back and set everything in its proper place exactly like it needs to be. And so we will see the king return. And I think it's this overview of the whole book that enables us to put our put ourselves in the kingdom, to find our place in the kingdom, really determine whether we're in or out. And what does it mean to be in the kingdom? So if we take another overview, and that's all I'm going to do this morning is overview. We'll just read a, a few verses when we look at, well, who is Matthew? Who is this guy who penned this great gospel? If we take a look at the uh, overview, say an aerial view of Matthew, we're going to see about seven different figures or what I would think of as key players, say, on a chessboard. Things that God is always working in and moving. And this is kind of his team or what he is up to in the kingdom. And, and, and by hearing these, I think we'll really be able to see uh, the context for which God has placed us. First, we see the message of the kingdom, the central message, and it comes out of the mouth of Christ. And it's clear the message that we will hear time and time again is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. That message still goes out. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ is here. And the good news is that we can be forgiven. We can repent. Of our sins. So that's one of the, the key players in this book is, of course, the message itself. Another key aspect or, or piece to uh, the, the chessboard are the disciples. The disciples are the citizens of this kingdom. They're, they're the, the followers of the king. And when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to very clearly tell us what it looks like for his citizens to live in the kingdom. The kind of decisions they make, the kind of choices they make, the kind of attitudes they bear. So we have the disciples and then we have the idea of discipleship. As Jesus is going to teach us that to, to be a disciple is not easy. He warns us right up front. And he says things like those that want to keep their life, they're going to, they're going to lose it. But those that give their life gain it. So discipleship to follow this king in this kingdom is a difficult thing. And fourth, we find the church. Uh, Matthew is the only gospel writer that even mentions the church. He uses the word ecclesia. We have the church. So what is the church? What place does the church find in the kingdom? Well, it's the outpost. 
The church is the outpost on earth of the kingdom of God. It's the place that God chooses to manifest his spirit. As we've experienced here this morning, it's a place that God uses to demonstrate to the world what it looks like to be a part of this kingdom. And he does this within the outpost. The church of the living God where people can see what it's like. And then we have another important piece of this kingdom, and that's the mission of the kingdom. What's the mission of the outpost and the disciples? It's to spread the good news. There's a message of the kingdom and the and the members of that kingdom spread it. They talk about it. They witness with their lives and with their words. Both are equally important. So they proclaim and it serves as sanctification for the saints and salvation for the lost. And we're also reminded in this book that the mission and the outpost, the church is so powerful. What God is doing in us that the gates of hell Will not prevail. In other words, it's unstoppable. What Christ has started when he came and rose again, this church that he's building, this outpost, it's unstoppable. Now, it may fade out a little bit in this geographical location. People may grow cold, but it's it's burning hot somewhere else on the globe. It is unstoppable. The gospel will continue to go out until the Lord returns. Of course, no picture of this kingdom would be complete without the enemies. See, in this life that we live, our reality, we also have enemies, and that would be the demons, Satan being the main one. And God's disciples, the people, the outpost needs to know it's not all safe. Everything we do, it's not all safe. We are opposed greatly. And the demons absolutely hate our transformation. They hate any work that we try to do that would glorify and draw attention to the king of kings. Because they like the counterfeit world. They like everything disguised and deceitful. We need to be aware that we will absolutely be opposed in our walk with Christ. It wouldn't surprise me if some of us were opposed this morning just trying simply to get to church. Opposition from the enemy. And then last, the last great player or concept in this kingdom is the hope. Matthew gives us this hope because he reminds us that not only is Christ here, in other words, the kingdom is a present reality, and we get little pieces of the kingdom of God, the glory of God in our lives. And when we come together as a church, he manifests himself uh, sometimes unusually powerfully. So we get glimpses of it. But he reminds us that not only is it here, but it's coming. It's on the way. So every believer and every outpost live with this cloud over their head. And it's not a dark cloud. It's a beautiful light cloud. And it's the idea that he's coming. And the way I read scripture, every day is closer. The cloud every day when we look up. And I think people sense it. We look up, the cloud is just a little bit closer than it was yesterday. A little bit closer to everything being set exactly as it's supposed to be. Where there's no more games, no more enemies. And, and all the hurts and all the pain and all the confusion will be dispelled. And there will be warmth and there will be glory. And there will be peace forever. Not just sometimes when we manage to make it into our room or have our quiet time. And we can 
let the things of the world grow strangely dim. The, the things of the world will, will be forever dim. We won't concern ourselves with those. But we will be in the presence of God and experience that peace. And so it's this message and these seven pieces on the, the, the chessboard. And I guess you could say that the, the king's return means checkmate for the enemies. Checkmate. Their time is up. And they will go into their proper place. So th- th- this is us. We'll find ourselves in the gospel of Matthew. That's what we're about. We're about being the outpost. We're about spreading the good news. We're about reminding ourselves that there still is good news in this world. And it's still the same good news that Matthew talked about. It is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Joining hands and minds and hearts and exalting Christ. Who else is going to do it in the world? Who else will make God known? People that have hearts that haven't been transformed. There's no desire to make the God that they don't know known. It's the responsibility that it's the great high privilege that we have to know God and to make him known. So what we are doing here, though, we may be tempted for it to lose its slack and luster because it's it's so redundant. And it's meant we're meant to do the right things repetitively, but we're not meant to lose its luster. What we are doing is so significant to come here and to gather in the name of Christ and exalt the one and only true king. Reminds us every Sunday that we are in the kingdom of God. That we have work to do of praising but also spreading the message. And also sanctifying our hearts through the spirit. By just availing ourselves to the disciplines of grace that God gives us. We can't underestimate the importance of a Sunday school classroom downstairs. Or across the way, although I think it moved back to the home, to the motherland. I think the, the, the Sunday school class that was over there has come back to the motherland. We can't underestimate the significance that children are hearing the kingdom principles. That they're learning what it means to live in this kingdom. Because that's our context that God has given us to live. And Augustine Reminds us that there's the, the, the king, the city of man and the city of God. We're in the city of God and our ways are different. And we need to constantly be reminded of these ways or they will leave us. The things of the world will overcome and fill our thoughts and minds. It could be as simple as a song that we hear. A song that can bring us away or take us away or a song that can bring us back into the remembrance of Jesus is The sovereign king. So doing what we do makes perfect sense. Raising our kids the way we do makes perfect sense in that context. So that's just an overview of the book. What about this man? Who is this man, Matthew, that wrote this glorious gospel? When did he write it and what did he write it about? Well, we don't know exactly when he wrote it. Some books we can get real close to the, to the year. But we know he wrote it between 50 and 70 A.D. Because it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. And of course, it had to be written after uh, Jesus lived and ascended. <clears throat> now, how do we know that Matthew wrote the book? 
We're going to read all 28 chapters and we will not read anywhere where Matthew assigns his name to this book. And sometimes books of the Bible have uh, their, their authors in it. They write themselves into it. Matthew never does that. But in all of the original, the early manuscripts that were spread and read in the churches have Matthew's name assigned to this gospel, every single one of them. So, in other words, those that lived in this day, those that read this book of Matthew's, knew that he was the author. It's simply unquestionable. And, of course, we know why he wrote it, because I just explained that to you. It was to show us that Christ is the king. He's the one that was predicted to come. He will reign and rule forever. The king revealed, the king rejected, the king who returns. But what about Matthew? What do we know about this guy? You know, you don't hear a lot about Matthew. You hear a lot about the Apostle Paul and the other disciples or the other apostles. But we don't hear about Matthew. So what was he all about? What is his story? Well, if you know anything about your Bibles, you already know something about Matthew without me even digging up any background information. And that is you will know that Matthew... Is one of the twelve. One of the twelve. Of all of the, the millions or billions of people that have come into this world and gone back out. And each one has their own story. There are only twelve individuals that have ever been in this world. That held the position or had the privilege That they did. And Matthew was one of them. See, Matthew was one that was called, handpicked by Christ. And and called into... Now, you know Jesus loves everybody. But he called specific people to do life with him in a very intimate way. And it was only those twelve that saw Jesus, the man, the God... They they were able to eat with him. They saw Jesus weep. They saw Jesus laugh. They would recognize Jesus' voice. They spent time with him. They would recognize Jesus' mannerisms through his silhouette. They would know what Jesus liked, what his favorite food was. They would hear Jesus moan when he prayed and laugh when he praised. Jesus only called 12 of the mass of humanity into this tight fellowship to do life in a way. Matthew was one of those. One of the 12. One of, I guess I'll call it elite, but you have to be careful with that. But he has more of a background than that. The days of Christ, when Jesus was born, as you know, Israel was under Roman domination. And if you've ever been under any kind of domination, whether it's your big brother, big sister sitting on you, or uh, domination through an employer or whatever, a bully or a gang, it is not a fun thing. Because you're coerced, you're manipulated, you're forced to do things that you don't want to do because there's just a higher rule. And so they were under the domination of the Roman emperor. Rome was it in that day. They were the, the power nation. And they did not like it at all. And so another set of values was imposed upon them. Another political uh, way of doing things and way of life was constantly being uh, 
imposed upon them. And so they were under this very oppressive rule. One aspect of this oppressive rule was the taxation system. Uh, it was a very, very, um, very grueling taxation system. It was very systematic. If you think the IRS is bad, and I think the IRS is a little inconvenient, <laughs> personally, I'll just say it, uh, and under scrutiny of their own, if you read the news, they did some bad things. Keep up with the times, the IRS. It just wasn't about uh, taxing your money. It was about uh, who they decided wouldn't get a um, 501c3 uh, nonprofit permission or license or um, status. Thank you. Uh, and you will not like that article if you read what's going on with that. So the oppressive rule spread, of course, into the taxation system. And they had two taxes and they were... Similar to ours, they had a poll tax and what they called a ground tax. The poll tax in that day was like our income tax. Don't you love it when you buy something and it costs $10, but you're charged 11 or 12 That's because of the tax. Uh, they charge little things, but also your income tax, your paycheck. <clears throat> you might make $10 an hour. That's not what you bring home because of income tax. And then they also had a, a poll, I mean a, a ground tax, which would be our property tax. So, they were taxed on the wealth they accumulated and also everything that they owned was taxed. But their system was different. It's, like anything, it's, it's not like anything we would know of today. They had a different way of doing it. What would happen is the very wealthy people in Rome, the senators or the magistrates or, of course, classes in those days, social classes, the very wealthy people were given an opportunity to buy at public auction the rights or the revenues of a certain people group that were under the domination of Rome, they could buy the revenues for taxes for five years. So they would bid at public auction to buy these tax the, the revenue. Very, very wealthy people. Maybe they would do it individually. Maybe they'd form some kind of coalition. And several investors would get together and say, let's buy the revenues for this. So Rome would sell them in advance, auction them off. And then so these people would own them for five years. Now, it was their job, because it's an investment, basically, to get as much revenue, to get as much money for their investment as they possibly can. Now, they did have rules as far as what they could tax for. But they could make a lot of their own rules. And they could they tried to tax the people and get as much as they possibly could without causing a, you know, a rebellion to where they wouldn't get anything and it would cost them money. They didn't want rebellion because then it would cost them money. Anything that would keep them from getting their tax money. So it was up to them. The people that owned the revenues were called uh, the publicani or the publicani. They were the ones whom the revenue uh, was due. So what they would do, let's say they bought the revenues for taxes in this people group, let's just say from Israel, the Israelites in Jerusalem, that people group that was in subjection, they would hire uh, countrymen or tax collectors, tax gatherers, people among their own people who kind of had inside scoop and would know who might be cheating. 
to gather these taxes, to collect these taxes. They were called publicans or tax collectors. Of course, they're brothers and sisters, so if you were a tax collector, uh, you wouldn't have many friends. The tax collectors in that day, because you were a traitor. You were taking money from your own people and giving it to a foreign power, which just enables them to continue to keep you in domination. So you were a traitor. You were not appreciated. Uh, you were among the lowlifes of society. You actually, and we'll read in, in Matthew where you were considered uh, down there with the, with the thieves, with the murderers, with the harlots, with all the, the criminals. That's the place you had as a tax collector. Because the tax collectors were also known for being greedy and for gouging. They would take advantage of people any top, any opportunity they got. So maybe some people didn't know how to count their money or didn't know the, the, uh, the transaction between um, Roman coins and, and uh, Israel's coins. Whatever, Whenever they could uh, make a little extra money, they would, the tax gatherers. So the only people that they could really hang around with because they weren't accepted in regular society was, was with all the other people who weren't accepted in regular society. So they kind of had their own little low-life society. And they were very greedy people. And you perhaps you know the little song of Zacchaeus, a wee little man, right? He was a tax collector. And so in... When he was living outside the kingdom, he was greedy and he would just extort people and he would cheat them and gouge them the most he could to put money in his own pocket. But when he came into the kingdom of Christ the King, he realized, "Uh uh-oh, what I did was wrong. This is not the rule of Christ's kingdom. And so I'm going to give this money back, which was a good thing to do. But he gave a lot of money back. What does that mean? He was one greedy thief. He had a lot of money to give back because he stole a lot of money. Of course, Christ's transformation took care of that. So, tax collectors. Well, one of these tax collectors, one of these publicans, was also an Israelite named Matthew Levi. They call him Matthew Levi in different places, but who we know as Matthew. He introduces himself into his own story about the kingdom in chapter 9, verse 9. And here's what he says. As Jesus passed forth from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. There's Matthew writing himself into the story. This tax collector, this person that... No one else would have anything to do with. Jesus sits, sees him serving in this position, this capacity. And he calls him to be a disciple. And he gets up and he follows Christ. What an interesting testimony or transformation. Uh, some people would say only Christ could turn a publican into an apostle. That's about right. Something that only Christ could do. So God calls this man into the inner circle. And uh, when he left that table, his place of work, 
He left behind a lot of money. You know, he was he, he was in it for a reason. We don't know how greedy he was. We don't know if he was as bad as Zacchaeus. So I don't want to impose too much on him. Uh, I mean, there are people that have honest principles in dishonest jobs. There are those. And uh, he must have had something um, about him that desired God because he did just leave it and he followed Christ. Maybe he had heard Christ speak before. We don't know that part, but we know that he left it and he followed him. And then what did he do? He gathers all of his other sinner, low life, low society friends for a meal in verse 10 of that same uh, chapter. And he throws a party and he basically, I would say, to introduce his, his friends to his new master, Christ. It came to pass as Jesus sat eating in the house, no doubt that, the house of Matthew. Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So Matthew wanting to introduce friend with new friend as a new follower uh, of Christ. From publican to apostle. So let's close this now. Matthew followed Christ not because he was worthy. He's a low life. But because he was called. And because he was called and because he followed and we know his story, he became an apostle called into that inner circle. From a tax collector to an apostle, not because he's worthy. And so it's a reminder to us. It's not what we have to bring into the kingdom. It's how we follow the call. We, we all have our own story. And Jesus is speaking different things. Of course, it's the same message. Uh, it serves the same purpose, but he's speaking different things to all of us. We know what that is. We know often what Christ is after in our own hearts. It's because he wants us to serve him in a specific way. No matter what we've come from, it's not a matter of being worthy. It's, it's a matter of that daily following. By daily following Christ, Matthew is one of the twelve. And what an encouragement that is to us. What does that say to us as individuals and as a body? Follow that call. Follow the master. Follow the king. Then I think another source of encouragement in this book as well is the idea of the overview of the kingdom. I mean, we are subjects in the kingdom and we have a king and he wants us to live like that. And we are an outpost. We're disciples when we live individually and we, we proclaim Christ in our home, to our children, at the workplace, when we're driving down the road or in the marketplace. We represent Christ here. But when we come together, we are the outpost of the kingdom of God. We are the lamp. We are the light to the world that's lost. What a privilege that is for us. So the intensity that we praise and worship him to the intensity that we live for him and make these decisions, we are demonstrating to the world that the king lives. This is the reality that we live in. We have been given a place and a purpose and everything we do has extraordinary meaning. So I hope that we're encouraged and I, and I also anticipate us to find our place. And if we've lost it, to be reminded of our place in the kingdom and the importance of what we do every Sunday after Sunday or every week after week or every day after every day. This is serious stuff. It's joyful stuff. It's a high calling. And it's a high privilege. 
Uh, May God bless the preaching of his word.